Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris as we take a look at finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, now with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. Does anybody know how many prophecies the Bible has concerning Jesus Christ? How much is a lot? Just put a number on it, a realistic number. What would you say? 185, that's not a bad guess. And think about that, 185 times God speaking of Jesus and it coming to pass is an incredible amount of evidence pertaining to Jesus, but it's actually more than 185. Anybody want to take another guess? It's actually more than 285. It's approximately 365 with upwards of 500 prophecies that God the Holy Spirit said concerning his son. Think about that. 365 to 500 times, God says, this is what my Messiah will look like. And it came to pass. Now, why did God tell us these things were going to happen before they happened? Why? What was his purpose behind it? To be ready, to be watching. And when it happens, to verify. And that verification leads to our what? Faith. And how are we saved? By faith. So God has told us all things before they happen. So when they come to pass, we will know that God exists, that God is real, that this book is the truth, and that by believing, we may have life in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, of all the Old Testament books and prophecies of Jesus, which one do you think has the most prophecies concerning the Lord? The book of Isaiah. And so we've been going the last, uh, I would say, three or four months now, looking at Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And so we are now embarking on the prophet Isaiah. We've already looked at him as the suffering servant, and now we are going to look at him as the Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn with us to Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to start there. Isaiah chapter 7, and that famous verse verse 14. And we're going to see three things concerning the Christ from Isaiah. We're going to look at his arrival. We're going to look at the announcement of his ministry. And then we're going to look at the ministry itself. And then next week, it leads in to the Christ and his kingdom. So first, let's look at the Christ's arrival, according to the prophet Isaiah, which wrote about Jesus uh, 750 to 800 years before Jesus was the babe in Bethlehem. And so Isaiah chapter seven and verse 14 says this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For the boy, for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So we as Christians immediately believe Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 to be referring to whom? To Jesus Christ. However, a lot of the world, a lot of the, the uh, critical scholars, a lot of Jews, a lot of atheists, and even some Christians, they try to look at Isaiah chapter 7, particularly verse 14, and denounce that that speaks of Jesus Christ. And they say two things. One, the context is off. And number two, the language is off. And in Hebrew, the word virgin in verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold a virgin. That word in Hebrew can mean two things. Virgin, or it can mean a young woman. 
a very young woman. So a very young woman is going to conceive and bear a child and his name shall be Emmanuel. And scholars say because of the context and because of the linguistics of the passage, this cannot be referring to Jesus Christ. It's referring to someone in that time. Now there is in the Bible, short-term and long-term prophecy. God specifically short-term dealing with the problem at hand while also in the long-term professing an even greater prophecy. And in Isaiah chapter seven is exactly just that. It speaks of a short-term deliverance, but it is referring specifically to the long-term deliverer. And this is how I'm going to make my point that this refers to Jesus. When I was in Nigeria, and I went and I, I went to go uh, help preachers uh, learn how to preach and teach the Bible. And the thing that I pounded in their head over and over and over again is context is king and it reigns supreme. I said that over and over and over. The context is king. And I told them, how do we find context of a passage? And how do we know what God meant when he wrote it? And I said, you take the passage, and where does the passage sit in the paragraph? Where does that paragraph sit in the section of the book? Where does that section of the book fit in with the whole of the book? Where does that whole of the book, Isaiah, fit in with the Old Testament? And how does the Old Testament then fit in with the whole message of Scripture? And this is how we get the context, and then we can apply it. What does it mean? as far as God meant it to say, and then what does it mean to me or us? And we draw then application. So when looking at Isaiah 7, we have to look at the section that it's placed in. And the section it's placed in is chapter 7, chapters 8, and chapters 9. And chapters 7, 8, and 9, it's speaking of one person, Emmanuel. Now the, and the, the, Problem we have to try to, or question we have to solve is, who is this Emmanuel? And that gives us our answer. So if you have the, uh, you can look up on screen, you'll see uh, some verses I have there. When we run them together, this describes the context and description of our Emmanuel. So I'll read those verses to you. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Then we go to chapter eight, and we go to verse five. Again, the Lord said to me further saying, inasmuch as these people have rejected me gently, flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in resin and the son of Ramallah. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep into Judah and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land. And what are the last two words? Oh, Emmanuel. So this is tying now Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So this is the context of the passage. In Israel, there was now two nations, two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom made up of 10 tribes. And then John, you had the southern kingdom of? There you go. The southern kingdom of Judah made up of Judah, one tribe, and Benjamin, the second tribe. Now, Israel, the northern tribe, had become like America absolutely apostate. They started good. They started centrally built on the foundational principles of God, and they fell way away. They took in uh, sexual perversion. They altars to foreign gods. Uh, They did abortion through child sacrifice before the altars of the Canaanite gods. They completely went apostate. But what God was so furious to, uh, to the northern Israel was what they did here during the time of Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. What, what uh, the northern kingdom of Israel did was the king went to attack 
his brothers to the south Judah. Only what he did was he went and he got a Gentile nation to help him. So he went and broke God's covenant to a, a foreign people so that he could attack his brothers to the south. And so you have the northern kingdom of Israel and Damascus of Syria coming together and they go down to Judah and they wage war and they almost completely obliterate Jerusalem. But they fight off the invasion and they end up winning. Now, how does that happen? Does anybody know the story? It's in 2 Kings chapter 7. So what happens is King Ahaz, who's the king down at Judah, the north and in Syria is waging war, and he says, I need help. So he goes and he gets in bed with the devil, and he goes to the most brutal, merciless, vile nation in the world, which had now become the superpower of all the world, the Assyrian Empire. And so you have King Ahaz. He goes to the king of Assyria. His name is Tiglath-Pileser. We'll call him Tiger. He goes to Tiger and he says, I need help. Help wage war. And so Assyria comes and they de help defeat the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria of Damascus. But look at what God says. Even the king of Assyria, uh, chapter 8, verse 7, and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and over all its banks. So the Assyrian empire is like a, a raging river and the water is going to rise and sweep into Judah, and it will overflow and pass through, and it will reach even to the neck. So Assyria is going to come and help Judah, but then guess what Assyria is going to do? They're going to turn around and attack Judah, and, and Judah is going to be neck deep and a whole lot of problems. And so now God, in, in verse 10, calls out to the king of Ahaz, and listen to what he says. I'm sorry, verse 9. He calls out to the the king of, where am I at here? I'm sorry. Then it will sweep into, so God then is calling on Ahaz to believe in him. So if you go back to Isaiah chapter seven and verse 10, you see this. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask for a sign yourself from the Lord your God and make it as, as Sheol or as high as heaven. So God is going to Ahaz the king through the prophet Isaiah and he's saying, ask me anything. Ask me for a sign that I may prove myself and let that your request be as deep as hell or as high as heaven. Ask me anything so that I can show my power. And then in verse 12, Ahaz, uh, verse 11, Ahaz says this, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now that seems holy on Ahaz's part, but the Bible says that he's a wicked man and he's more superstitious than spiritual. So God is saying, trust me, not the Assyrians. Trust me, not man. Trust in my ways, not the world's ways. Ask of me anything, as, much, as big of a request as possible, and I will show you my power. And Ahaz says, nah, pass. We're going with the Assyrians. We're just going to trust with those guys. And so then God says, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight of a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Since you reject God's request, God himself is going to prove that he is going to throw off your enemies. How is he going to do that? A virgin will conceive and bear a son and name him Emmanuel. So then the Assyrians come, the war is happening. Then we go to chapter nine and verse two. It's all the same section. And it says this, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. How? How is the light going to shine in a dark land? Verse 6 and 7. For a child, the same child is Isaiah chapter 7. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Listen, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. From then on, from the time the virgin conceives and bears a son, he will rule and reign on David's throne forever. So Isaiah chapter seven has to be referring to the Messiah. Now we turn to Matthew chapter one. It's the very first verse in the New Testament. And what Matthew is doing is he is drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah prophesied from the Old Testament. The very first words of the New Testament is this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of, why is it so important to be David's son? Because what does Isaiah chapter nine say? That this Emmanuel will rule and reign. He'll be the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the mighty God, and he will do what? Forever and ever from that point on. There is no man reigning in Israel from the point of Ahaz till now, but there is the Messiah who came, who set up his kingdom. This has to be referring to Jesus. Then in Matthew chapter one, verse 18, now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus means Yehoshua, the Lord or Yahweh, is salvation. Why is his name Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So the New Testament validates and verifies that Isaiah chapter seven, Emmanuel is speaking of Messiah. Now, why is the virgin birth important? Why did God in Genesis chapter three tell us the seed of the virgin, she, you know, of there's gonna be a virgin birth and he's gonna be born and he's gonna crush Satan's head. What is it? Why did God choose the virgin birth? So there's two main reasons. The theological reason is this. The Jews believe this truth, that it was the seed of the man that passed sin. That's what they believed, that through Adam, he was our federal head. He fell, and then through him, sin entered in. And the way sin is passed is through the male's seed. And that's why David said, in my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. It passes through the male. If Jesus was to be sinless, then God had to circumvent the male seed. So how did he do that? Through God, the Holy Spirit. That's number one. Number two, it was to be a sign. And what was the point of a sign, a miracle? What was the point of the apostles going and preaching the gospel and then healing somebody or raising them from the dead? What's the purpose of a miracle or a sign? To glorify God and to do what? prove, to prove that what God has said is true. 
So in Isaiah 7, he says, this is my sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He should be named Emmanuel. How many women throughout all of history, young women have conceived a child and called him Emmanuel? A lot. I have friends named Manny. I, have, I know people named Emmanuel. Their mom was probably young when they had them. This is why it has to mean virgin because God is proving himself to be supernatural. Now think of this. There's 8 billion in the world. How many conceptions throughout all of human history do you think have happened? Not actual births, but conceptions. Billions, probably tens of billions from the beginning of time till now. How many of them happened without male seed? One, one. The virgin birth is a sign to the world that Jesus is one and multiple billions. And get this, that's just in one aspect, his birth. What about his ministry? What about his death, burial, resurrection, ascension? When you add it all together, there can only be one Christ. And his name is Jesus. And the virgin birth is proof of that truth. So God comes and he says, the arrival of the Christ, the virgin birth. Now, the second thing Isaiah says is the announcement of his ministry. And so for that, flip to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse one. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. And call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity, that sin, has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So how does this comfort take place? How does the removal of iniquity happen? Verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert, a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Here's the announcement of the Christ. He's going to have a front runner. He's going to have a pace car. He's going to be the, the, the previews to the coming feature presentation. Before the Christ comes, he's going to have someone who's going to be his MC, his hype man, who's going to tell everybody that the king has arrived. And who is that, Adonis? John the... Baptist, right, Adonis? John the Baptist. And so how do we know that? We flip over to Matthew chapter three. So Matthew chapter one, it's the virgin birth. Matthew chapter two, it's the rest of the Christmas story. And then when you get from Matthew chapter two to Matthew three, guess how many years takes place in that little white space? 30. So when we swipe right, when we turn our page, 30 years changes from chapter two to chapter three. We go from virgin birth and then Matthew chapter three, verse one says this. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent. Why? Why are we to repent? Why are we to repent? What does John say in verse two? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's near. We can almost gra grab it. Well, how is the kingdom coming? What do you mean, John? For this one is referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John the Baptist is preaching repentance down there at the river Jordan and people are coming from Jerusalem and they're being saved. They're hearing of judgment. They're hearing of the coming king. They believe Messiah is here. The kingdom is at hand. They're repenting of their sins and they're coming to faith. And then the religious leaders hear about it and say, 
let's go talk to this guy, John. So they go out to the desert and they ask him a question. Are you the Christ? And he says, no. Well, what's your message, John? What's your point? What are you doing out here? Listen to what he says in verse 11, Matthew 3, 11 and 12. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So Adonis, what does John say Jesus is going to do? He's going to have two parts. The first part was what? That's okay. He's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. John baptized with water. The coming one, the Christ, is going to give us his spirit where we will have power from on high. The second one, Adonis, verse 12, he will take the wheat and the chaff and do what with it? separate them and the stuff he doesn't like, what does he do? Burn it. This speaks of judgment. The Christ is coming. Kingdom is at hand. John the Baptist said, the ax is laid at the root, which means I'm chopping this whole place down. God's coming. He's bringing his judgment. And what is this Christ going to do? He's going to take the wheat, which is those who are saved, the believers, those who bear fruit, and he's going to take them into his home. The chaff, which is the part of the wheat that has no purpose, is to be thrown away. That's the unbelievers. When you go through Matthew, Jesus speaks of the kingdom parables. And over again, it's the same thing. The refuse he throws away, but the fish he's going to keep. The, the swine are gone, but the pearls are his. The, the goats are separated, but the lamb is his. It's always the wheat and the chaff, the unbeliever and the believer. Christ is going to come. He's going to baptize his people with his spirit, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And John the Baptist was uh, prophesied by Isaiah 750 years earlier to be his front man. So we have his arrival, the virgin birth. We have the message or announcement of his uh, arrival, which is John the Baptist. Now let's look at his ministry. Isaiah chapter eight, verse 13. Let's now see the Christ's ministry according to Isaiah the prophet 800 years prior. Isaiah chapter eight, verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Now here we have that phrase or that concept, the fear of the Lord. Do you remember that from Proverbs? We must have talked about that eight to 10 different times. Now the fear of the Lord, its recipe is made up of three ingredients. Remember that? And when you put all three ingredients together, you have the real deal fear of the Lord. Does anybody remember what three parts make up the fear of the Lord? Darn. It's all right, Brian. <laughs> we got to do better. All right. The fear of the Lord, three parts. Number one, it's actual fear. And we see that here. It, you know, he shall be your dread. He shall be your fear. When it comes to the Lord, we should fear him, like legitimately fear him. The Bible says, don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul, which is God. When you think of God and his holiness and his power, and you think of our wickedness and sin, when you think of God's standard for righteousness, and you, you think about God's judgment and chastening for his people, that should cause us to fear. God will break your legs if you're disobedient so that he can carry you if you will not go your own way. He, he'll do it, and he'll do it because he loves you. But that should cause us fear. We cannot live that life of disobedience. Number two, the fear of the Lord is reverence or honor. We revere someone. You know, we, we seek to honor them, to elevate their name. The third is obedience. 
when we fear and when we revere and reverence, it automatically leads to obedience, you know, and doing the right thing. So God is saying, fear me, fear me, obey me, fear me, and revere me. Then, verse 14, what happens? Then he shall become a sanctuary. Who's the he referring to? Remember Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. Who's the he referring to? Emmanuel. Who's Emmanuel? Jesus. Then he will become your sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So God says this, fear me. And if you do, I will be your what? Starts with an S, sanctuary. But if you don't, like the Jews, I will be a stumbling block. Now flip over to John 3 with me. I'm I'm sorry, John chapter one. Flip over to John chapter one. Now John one and Matthew one, two, and three go parallel with each other in the sense that it starts with Jesus' beginning, then it starts with John the Baptist, and then his ministry. So in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse six, we have John the Baptist. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He, John the Baptist, was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So we have the, the Christ's arrival. We have the Christ's announcement. And now verse nine, check this out. We see his ministry. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. The word know is in relationship. They didn't have a relationship with him. Listen to this, verse 11. He came to his own. Who is his own referring to? The Jewish people. He came to his own and what happened? And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. How are we saved? Who were born not by blood. You're not born because of your genealogy into heaven, nor of the will of flesh. We don't inherently desire to be born again, nor of the will of man. No person has ever said, I choose Jesus but of God. God is the reason you're saved. And now verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is tabernacled or sanctuary. Christ came and became our temple, our holy of holies, our sanctuary, our tabernacle. What is a sanctuary? We heard sanctuary cities. You know, we come and say, come sit down in the sanctuary. What's a sanctuary? Place of refuge, protection, shelter, provision. Isaiah says, you fear the Lord and the Lord will become your sanctuary, your tabernacle. He'll dwell amongst you and he will be your peace and your joy and your refuge and your provision. He will make sure no harm comes to you. Why? Because of the will of God, God's will. But he came to his own and his own knew him not. Going back to Isaiah 8, you fear the Lord, then he shall become your sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, In verse 18, it says this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever, and I will set aside. Where is the wise man? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolishness of wisdom, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Verse 22, for indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both to Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, 1 Peter 2, verse 6, for this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for those of you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So what does that mean, Adonis? What does that mean? It means that the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the Jewish people, causes them to stumble. This is what I know about my Jewish friends. They are zealous about three things, ultra zealous about three things. One is Shabbat or Sabbath. I've known Orthodox Jews to turn down incredible jobs and careers because that job forced them to work on Saturday. And so they said, no way, Josue, I'm not doing it. They're very zealous about Shabbat. Number two, they're very zealous about their dietary law. You put a ham sandwich or, you know, honey baked ham in front of an Orthodox Jew and there's going to be major issues. They are extremely zealous about their idea of being kosher. Number three, they're incredibly zealous that Jesus is not their Messiah. They will be angry with you. They'll slam the table. They'll turn red in the face. They may curse you out. They will get extremely angry and agitated towards you if you say that you missed your Messiah. Jesus from 800 BC in the prophecy of Isaiah all the way to 2022 has been a stumbling block for the Jewish people every step of the way. Another prophecy fulfilled in the box of Jesus Christ. He's gonna come and those who fear the Lord and believe on him, he'll dwell with them and he will be your refuge. But those who reject like the Jewish people, they will be a stumbling block. So that's the beginning of his ministry. Now let's keep following his ministry through. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse nine. Isaiah 40, starting at verse nine. Now it begins um, with God comforting and taking away their iniquity. And then verses three through six is John the Baptist. And at the end of chapter 40, you have that famous verse, though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up like wings of eagles. They will run and not grow tired. They will walk and not become weary. So you have John the Baptist, And you have this promise that God will be their refuge. What happens in the middle? Verse 9, 10, and 11. Here is the ministry of the Christ. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news, which is gospel. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of the gospel. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. God is going to become incarnate. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. With his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead their nursing ewes. 
This is a powerful, powerful passage. God is declaring my gospel is coming. God himself is going to show up. And then listen to what it says in verse 10. With his arm ruling for him. So we have his and him, but they're referring to two different people. With his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. We're speaking of two different persons. Who do you think those persons are? God the Father and God the Son. This is the Trinity speaking of itself in the Old Testament, speaking of this truth. Now listen to what it says of Jesus. Number one, he will rule with God's arm, which means power. The Bible, when it describes the arm, always speaks of the power or someone's might. Jesus is going to come in the might of God the Father. Now let's follow this through. John chapter one, Jesus is the word. Then you have John the Baptist come in and he's proclaiming Christ. And then Christ is baptized by John the Baptist. The spirit of of God, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. And then what does God the Father say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then the spirit of God drives Jesus into the wilderness. For 40 days and 40 nights, he is being tried and tested by Satan. Jesus overcomes, and then Jesus immediately goes into his ministry. And then we get to John chapter 3, and listen to this. John chapter 3 and verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, so Nick at night, and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these. What's the word? Signs. What's another word for signs? Miracles that you do unless God is with him. What is he saying? You are doing miracles, signs, and wonders that we know only God himself can do. And who is he saying? Who is he representing? Nicodemus. All the Pharisees. Did you know not one time the Pharisees denied Jesus miracles? They did it. Not one time did they say, no, you didn't really do that. Or that was fake. Or, you know, you had strings. Or the guy wasn't really dead. No, no time. They acknowledged him to be a miracle worker. Even the Quran acknowledges Christ as sinless, born of a virgin and a miracle worker. They all testifies of our Lord. Now in Isaiah 8, it says that he will come with his arm. God will give Jesus his power to perform many miracles. And through the gospels, we read, Jesus was the hardest working man to ever walk the earth. He The S-O-N was up before the S-U-N every day. And the S-O-N went to bed long after the S-U-N fell down. And he worked diligently day and night. So many miracles had been recorded, John says, that I suppose if I wrote all of them down, all the libraries of the world cannot fit it in. All of Amazon's web-based servers cannot document all the things that Christ actually did. He was a miracle worker. And then Isaiah chapter 8 goes on, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 40 goes on and says, not only is he going to rule with power, uh, Isaiah 40, 10 says, behold, his reward is with him. God, the father's reward is with God, the son and his recompense or his compensation for his work is before him. What does that mean? What do you think that means? That in Jesus' ministry, he's going to come with the power of God the Father, and then God is going to reward Jesus with what? With what, Brian? With what, Brian? All things. With all things. How do we know that? John chapter 3, verse 31. 
John 3, 31, all in this same context. He who comes from above is from uh, is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard and that he testifies and no one receives his testimony that who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. Here's verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And he who believes in the son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Two things. Number one, God is going to give his Christ all things. Why? Why? Because what did Jesus do? Jesus came to fulfill all that the father called him to do. And when he said that, he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Then he rose Jesus from the dead, validating Christ fulfilled everything God the father called him to do. And then God the father says, okay, son, you're gonna have a bride, the church, and everything, everything, is going to be laid at your feet. It's all yours. You've done it. You've succeeded. Isaiah tells us Christ will rule with a powerful hand and God will reward him for that fact. Now, we'll close with this since we've already uh, covered it uh, in Isaiah chapter 53. Another important facet of the Christ's ministry is in Isaiah 50 verse five and six. Isaiah 50, verse five and six. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. That is to say, God told me the plan and I followed it to a T. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Then you go to Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was pierced for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions. The sin and iniquity of us all was upon him. Christ came, a virgin, that was his arrival. John the Baptist was his announcer. His ministry was a ministry where he did signs and wonders in the power of God. He receives the reward from God because of his disobedience. And then Isaiah chapter 40 also says, the Christ is going to be our shepherd. His ministry is to shepherd, to comfort his people, and then to die for his people be that atoning sacrifice. And so next uh, Sunday, we're gonna now go into Christ's kingdom. Now that we got his arrival, we got his sacrifice, we got his ministry here on earth, now we're gonna look at the reward of the Christ. We're gonna look at all that God the Father is going to give to Jesus. And that's so important to tag this and tie this message into that because of this truth. Did the virgin birth happen? Absolutely. And God said 800 years or 2,800 years ago that this was going to take place. 2,000 years ago, God pulled it off. 2,800 years ago, God says, John the Baptist is going to announce my son's arrival. 2,000 years ago, did that happen? Yes. God says of his Christ, he's going to be a miracle worker. 2,800 years ago, God said that. 2,000 years ago, did it happen? Even extra biblical, even extra, not outside the Bible, there are commentators who write of Christ at that historical time saying he's doing things no one could ever do. Signs and wonders we cannot explain. People who were not Christians, people who were anti-Christ were writing about Christ's miracles. This actually happened. Now, when we look at Christ's ministry itself, was he a shepherd? Absolutely. 
Did he come and, and receive the reward? Absolutely. Was he rejected by the Jews? Absolutely. Was his beard plucked? Absolutely. Was his back smitten? Of course it was. 2,800 years ago, God said it would happen. 2,000 years ago, God made it come to pass. God is batting 1,000. God is bowling a 300. God has never missed one of his promises. God has never lied to us. So now we're going to go into the kingdom next week. We're going to look at Christ and his glory and his rule and his reign. And we're going to say, ah, it doesn't make sense. It's hard to believe. Can we really trust it? Well, the virgin birth didn't make sense and that happened. The fact that God's own son had to die for us doesn't make sense, but it happened. I'm saying this so that we can truly believe Jesus is the son of God. And by believing, we will have life in his name. And now our responsibility is to go out and grow the kingdom. That's our responsibility. That's our one job. And so next week, we're going to read things that seem improbable, unbelievable, almost too good to be true. And they are if God doesn't exist, but he does. And so with that, we can praise him. Amen. All right, let's pray. I only went almost an hour. Father, we love you. We thank you. We appreciate you. We thank you, God, that you have told us all things beforehand so when they come to pass, we may believe. There is so much evidence, Lord. I mean, you've even said faith is the evidence of things not seen. And there is so much evidence and weight to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, and by believing, we may have life in his name. Lord, only the biblical worldview holds weight. May we hold the same view as you, and may we live for you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.